I'm Gary Bard, founder and editor-in-chief of today's Caregiver Magazine and Caregiver.com, and your host for our weekly caregiving podcast series. In this podcast, we will introduce you to many of the leading caregiving thought leaders, authors, experts, and even caregivers with famous faces who have graced the covers of our magazine. One of my favorite things to do in these podcasts is to interview some of the amazing authors in our Caregiver.com Caregivers Book Club. And today, I have the distinct privilege of talking with one such author, Joan Paddock Maxwell. Joan served for 12 years as hospital chaplain, including six years as a palliative care chaplain at George Washington University Hospital in Washington, D.C. In this role, she was responsible for offering spiritual care and support to all patients on the palliative care service. Joan received her professional training in hospital chaplaincy at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C., and at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center in Rockville, Maryland. She received a Master of Theological Studies degree in 2005 from Wesley Theological Seminary. She was endorsed as a chaplain by the Episcopal Church. And Joan is the author of the new book, Soul Support, Spiritual Encounters at Life's End, Memoirs of a Hospital Chaplain. Welcome, Joan. Thank you very much, Gary. It's a treat to be here. A quick point of clarification. Tell us what palliative care is. Uh, palliative care is when someone has been diagnosed with a life-threatening disease and the, the um, medical team knows that they have a severe mental, physical, or spiritual pain. Uh, the medical team is is skilled in helping people uh, reduce or even eliminate these sources of pain. Palliative care doesn't mean you're going to die. Palliative care means you are at risk of dying. Um, ho- all hospice care is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. Does that do you know, it for you? Absolutely, and we talk a lot about hospice care. It's one of those things caregivers really need to know, especially when they start their role as a family caregiver. But I I know that there is always a bit of confusion about the difference between hospice care and palliative care and, uh, you know, the, the definitions of both. I would encourage anyone who gets a life threatening diagnosis to ask their physician to link them with palliative care. Maybe you don't need it right now, but maybe you'll need it later. Palliative care uh, people are really expert in things that regular docs are not as expert in. Um, uh, Pain control is one of their skills. Um, Issues of motility, bowel movements, um, this this can be a source of agony for patients and families alike. And palliative care people know little tricks that will help you get regular and stay regular and save you a lot of agony. Joan, what inspired you to write Soul Support? I really felt that I was called, as they say in the religious, spiritual world, to write the book. I'm a professional writer. I've earned my living by my pen most of my life. I found myself exposed to extraordinary moments 
in people's lives. There I was at the bedtime seeing things that are very rarely seen. And I started meditating. Why, why is this happening? Why am I being shown these things? And I felt I was being shown these things because they need to be shared, not just with me, but with a much broader audience. So when that came to me, when it came time for me to retire, I felt I couldn't retire. I felt I had to write this book, and I did. What's the most important lesson you've learned from your life as a hospital chaplain? Oh, that's easy and hard to communicate. Let me do my best. I learned that there is, with every single patient, no matter their religious belief, no matter their spiritual belief, a benign, invisible presence that is present with them at all times. When you go into a patient's room as a chaplain, often you know almost nothing about them. Usually you know their name and their diagnosis and perhaps their age, and that's about it. You don't know what's going on in their heart and their soul. So you can't go in and fix things or help. You can only go in to serve. Your job is to be hugely present to the very moment of now that you and the patient are sharing. And to also be attentive to little whispers, little hints, little tiny things that come to you from this invisible presence. Your job is to be a conduit, if you will, if needed, from the presence to the patient. You see things that reveal the activity of the presence, and you can say that to the patient. You can say, did you notice that? This can be enormously comforting and inspiring to the patient. But what you have to do is not get in the way. You have to be attentive. You have to be hugely sensitive. And you have to be listening. You're really a guide along their trip. Yeah, you, you've heard of you've heard of doulas who help women giving birth. Sure. In a way, a, a chaplain is at the time of dying a death doula. You're helping people die in a way that is as rich and fulfilling and meaningful as possible. You know, I think is also so important for people to read this book is that. I truly believe that we can learn so much about how to live our lives by paying attention to what people say and do and how they live their lives at the very last moments. I have never had a patient say to me, gosh, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. (laughs) (laughs) Not one. Not ever. (laughs) I've had many say to me, oh, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids or my parents or my my partner or my spouse or my being in nature, just be, being walking by a lake, swimming, being, 
rather than doing. What are the most common experiences that you've witnessed as people who are nearing life's end? Well, I guess the ones that people aren't really aware of, the the single one that astonishes people the most is when a patient will somehow be communicating with somebody that you, the chaplain or the visitor, can't see. It's often that patients will raise their arms, smile, partly sit up in bed to embrace. looks like they're just embracing the air. But clearly for them, they're not embracing the air. They're embracing somebody uh and it's it's making them very happy to do so and this is not uniquely seen by me this is written about in in many books about the last stages of life but when people see these invisible creatures it's it's a very good thing it means someone has come to help them make the transition i remember i had a friend who I knew had a fatal disease, and I I went to see her when she was in the hospital. I wasn't going as her chaplain. I was going as her friend. And she said to me, Joan, I understand you're doing a lot of work with dying people. And I said, yeah. And she said, sit down and talk to me for a minute. And so I thought, aha, okay, something's up. So she asked me, so what have, your question, what have been some of the most interesting things? What do you see? And I told her, including about people seeing invisible people and she said tell me a little bit more about this and I told her a few stories and she said so Joan that would explain who the man is standing at the foot of my bed and I said well I can't see him but I'm sure you can and she said yeah and I said would you like me to go now so that you and he can spend some time together and she said yes please and I went That is a lovely story. You shared that moment with her and helped her on her path. I thought that that's that's so beautiful. Well, what the chaplain often does is normalize. People are not used to other people seeing invisible people, if that's a pretty confusing sentence, but you see what I mean. And I, I often would say to a family, when somebody would start sitting up in bed and opening their arms, I would say, is he or she the patient doing that a lot and they'd say yeah it's kind of weird and I would say no this is good news someone is coming to be with them you should be happy for them and at first they'd look at me like I was nuts but after a while they would get more used to it and more accepting and they would be they would have less anxiety less discomfort and more just oh yeah there's ma I don't know who's coming for her, but she sure seems pleased. Do you want to share a segment of the book with us? Well, um, thank you, Gary. There is an, a short story from the book that um, that I think is really terrific. It's called Beauty in the ICU, and it goes like this. A hospital's intensive care unit is a place of suffering, transformation, life, and death. Machines beep, whir, and sometimes cry out 
Patients are frequently comatose. Nurses tend to trot rather than walk from one task to the next. Flowers are banned. Red bins labeled medical waste provide the only touches of color. In this strange world, high technology seems to overwhelm the humans lying flat under white sheets. The one, see, one thing an ICU is not is a place of beauty. But one day, amid all those machines and medical tasks, I was surprised by beauty. Here's what happened. As the chaplain on call, I got an urgent request from an ICU nurse asking for a chaplain to visit a Ms. Thompson, a patient the staff knew was actively dying. When I asked about the patient's faith tradition, the nurse replied, all I know is that she said she was hanging on to Jesus. I grabbed my Bible and went to the ICU. Ms. Thompson was a middle-aged woman, eyes closed, lying very still, her poor body swollen from IV fluids. I took her hand and noticed that there was no bending in her wrist. When I lifted her hand slightly, her whole bloated arm rose with it, stiff as a tree trunk and nearly as heavy. I prayed for guidance, and it came to me that it would be appropriate for me to, for me to read a few Bible verses and see what happened. Since Ms. Thompson was hanging on to Jesus, something from the Gospel of John seemed the right place to turn. The Bible fell open to chapter 15 in that Gospel, and I read a few of the verses. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Then I stopped, and after a little silence, Ms. Thompson's eyes opened, and although she didn't speak, she smiled at me with her eyes. I'm Chaplain Maxwell, I said. I understand you're hanging on to Jesus. I hang on to Jesus, too, so I came to be with you. Is that okay? She gave me assent with her eyes. Would you like me to pray, I asked her. Again, she silently agreed, and I prayed. She closed her eyes during the prayer. When the prayer ended, I stopped, and after a little time, she reopened her eyes and again smiled at me. Then she opened her mouth. For the first time since I had come into her room and began to sing. In a lovely, soft voice, she sang a beautiful hymn to Jesus, one that I had never heard before, but clearly a hymn with a simple tune and words that rhymed. I could follow the melody and hummed along with her. It was an astonishing moment, this hymn rising out of her dying body, the two of us singing in the middle of the ICU with life-sustaining machines beeping in the background. She was getting in voice before joining the heavenly choir. When she finished, I reminded her that as her nurse had told me, she had family due to visit in about 20 minutes and asked her if she wanted to get a little sleep before they came. Once again, she smiled, then closed her eyes and fell asleep. 
I tiptoed out. She died the next day. I love that story. I love that story. That is so beautiful. That, that if that's anything like this book, I, I think they're going to fly off the shelf. Uh, that because it's it you could put yourself in the middle of it. You can feel it. You know, being somebody that you care about, and it's it's a I don't know. It's a peaceful story. Yes, there is a lot of peace and beauty in this book. It is not all sweetness and light because dying is tough. There's no two ways about it. And I want the reader to know that I'm telling the whole truth. So there are some stories that are hard to read and there are stories of pain. There are stories of failure on my part. Um, but there are a lot of people have said, I, in fact, I, had a, I was very touched, a plumber friend of mine, who read the book, said, Joan, I want to tell you something. All my life I've been afraid of death. And after reading your book, I'm not so afraid anymore. That's the nicest thing anybody could say about your work. That's that's beautiful. It is. It's It's wonderful. And the thing is, it's really true, Gary. This is what's so great. There is beauty. There is love. There is wholeness. There is peace. It is not, people don't talk about death, you know. They're afraid to. And so this is a big secret. And when somebody ends up caring for another person who is approaching death, they're often, they're alone with no guidance. They don't know what's going to happen. And they don't know how to, how to be. Or when somebody calls you and says, you know, my friend, your friend Susie um, is dying and wants to see you before she dies. You think, ooh, ooh, what should I do? How can I do that? I mean, they're dying. I don't know what to do. And actually, the first thing to know is you don't do anything. You don't go to fix. You don't even go to help in a particular way. You just go to serve. You just go to be present. Whether you're visiting somebody once or twice or whether you're caregiving long-term for somebody who is approaching the final curtain call, the thing to do is to take the cues from them because it's just like a woman who's in labor. You know, you don't tell the woman, excuse me, to behave in a certain way. You pay attention to what's happening with her and the baby and it's like a dance. You go with them the same way you dance with the person who is dying. What what can caregivers learn about helping their loved ones at life's end by reading Soul Support? Well, I think they can learn what I have been talking about, that it's not to try to fix it or try to help it, but try to serve it. To be attentive to signs of this invisible, benevolent presence. To not be afraid when something seemingly weird happens, when they talk, the, the dying person talks about seeing an invisible person or opens their arms. One of the things you can do is almost always dying people have a great need to tell the story of their life one last time. 
to review the whole thing. And you can help people do that by when they start telling you a story, sit down, shut up, and listen. Let them tell their story, even if you disagree with them, or even if they cry, or even if they are self-unkind to themselves. Let them get it out. And then, when they're really through, if you have something genuine to say, like, oh my goodness, how kind you were to whoever it was, or what a wonderful success you had at whatever it was. You can say that. You can validate them. But never judge. Never say, well, I agree. You really did kind of mess that up. When people are coming to the end of life, they have three concerns. The first concern is meaning. Did their life have meaning? That's what this so-called life review is all about. The second concern they have is relationships. There are five things you need to do <clears throat> excuse me, when you're dying with respect to relationships. You need to say, thank you. You need to say, please forgive me. You need to say, I forgive you. You need to say, I love you. And you need to say, goodbye. Help people who are dying if they seem to have the strength for this, to make some assessment of the important people in their lives and help them make those connections so they can do their final business. And the last thing, the deepest thing, the most difficult thing when a person is dying is for them to have a sense of their own value. Excuse me. It's when you are helpless, when you can't even control your bodily functions, when you can't even lift your hand from the bed, you ask yourself, what am I worth? I'm no longer able to diaper a baby. I'm no longer able to cook a meal. I'm no longer able to go to my job. I'm no longer able to open the door. I'm no longer able to sit up. Am I just trash? Am I just waste? Is there nothing left? Am I just useless? That's a big, big thing that people wrestle with. And if you can show the person you're caring for that even though they can't do anything, maybe they can't even speak, that they are still precious in your eyes and If you are a believer, and if they are a believer, know that they are precious in the eyes of God. That's really the biggest gift you can give them. 